Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Welcome to Just Us and the Climate. I'm your host today, Alex Lenferner, a climate justice campaigner with 350 Africa and secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. Today we are discussing the major 130 billion rand climate finance deal that South Africa signed onto as part of the COP26 UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Today I have the pleasure of two guests joining me. The first is Dr. Emily Tyler, who has over 20 years of experience in the energy and climate space, bringing the lenses of complexity and complex systems, economics and finance to the complex challenges she encounters. Uh, the specific areas of expertise that uh, Dr. Tyler brings include South African energy and climate policy, carbon pricing and budgeting, climate finance, power sector modeling for policy, corporate investor carbon strategies and low carbon transition planning. Emily is currently working with a team at Meridian Economics, which is a Cape Town based think tank in the energy and climate space. And she holds an honorary research associate position at the University of Cape Town's African Climate and Development Institute. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Great. Second up is Nina Callaghan, who is a researcher for the Center for Sustainability Transitions, the CST, over at Stellenbosch University. Um, her master's in philosophy is in sustainable development at Stellenbosch University, and it focuses on governance dynamics in South Africa's unfolding energy transition. Her research has contributed to theory building around state capture and geopolitical influence in Africa. And on a, a nice, more, I think, personal note, Nina is seeking better questions and practice for development, politics, family making, and being together on this mysterious planet. And I like that little personal note in your bio there, Nina, which kind of links into perhaps a bit more of a personal question that I, I wanted to kick off the podcast with. And so both of you are working on what can be the harsh reality of climate change. So I thought I would ask what motivates you to keep going and to do this work? Thanks, Alex. I'm really motivated being in the space of research, understanding what transitions are, understanding sustainability at a really critical juncture in our history. We are in transition. The climate is talking to us loudly about those transitions and it exacerbates the conditions, the socioeconomic injustices that I have been educated and schooled around my whole life. Mm. And so this is a, a golden thread. It's a continuation of the concerns that have been nurtured inside of me. Mm. And it also comes with a deepening relationship to nature and the earth and understanding, trying to understand that mystery, trying to understand how we participate and shape our reality and how we can make it better. I think there are very exciting possibilities for how we can change and how we can transition, but there are such obdurate ways of thinking and ways of understanding the world. And so that's very exciting to me is how we can untangle those very stubborn thought patterns or those very stubborn ways of 
how we practice and do life. So I don't necessarily only have um, enthusiasm for energy, but around this idea of transitions. Mm. I just think it's really exciting and it can set us on a new path entirely for all the things that are troublesome Mm. and unjust. Thanks, Nina. That's a really nice connection of how climate change is connected to so many injustices and sort of an injustice multiplier, but also that the transition that climate change is demanding also provides an opportunity to really transform much broader systems too. So that's, it's really nice to hear that motivation. Emily, how about you? So that's a, that's a hard act to follow, Nina, really eloquent kind of overview. And I think a lot of that resonates with me. Just maybe to pick up on, on one or two threads is that what does motivate me is exactly as you say, I think this um, climate change gives an opportunity to address so much more, so much else that is that is unjust beyond and unsatisfying and non-ideal in the way humans are relating with to each other and to our world that links to the um, what you said. But I think it, I see it as an opportunity and it, it's very exciting to be involved in really what I feel is meaningful work and, and I'm less perhaps in being attached to the outcomes of what I do every day, but more being offered an opportunity to practice to be differently mm. in how I engage with these problems because I really deeply believe that it's it's how we approach the challenge of climate change and the tra- challenges of transition that mm. um, ultimately is where the, the change that we're seeking lies. Mm, that's really nice. And it also connects to the theme of this podcast, which is that climate change is not just a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world too. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, transition into discussing the big news of the day that we're here to discuss, which is that South Africa made this really big climate finance announcements, although maybe it's not so big. That's part of the the question at hand, uh, which is 130 billion rand in partnership with the UK, the US, EU, France and Germany uh, to accelerate a just transition to renewable energy. And so we're here to, to discuss that uh, finance deal, to dig into some of the details, maybe the, some of the lack of details. So I, I wanted to check in with both you, Nina and Emily. What was agreed to within that deal and what is your assessment of it? How, how are you thinking about this deal? Maybe we can switch it around. Uh, Emily, do you want to kick off and then Nina, we hand to you? Alex, it was a political statement, ultimately, of to work towards developing a partnership that is based on providing South Africa with financial support in its energy transition. So there are not very many details in terms of how this financing will flow, what it will flow to, when it will flow, but it's a statement of intent. Um, So to create a political space and a political focus There is some detail on establishing a task force to start working on those details. So that is created, which is really significant. There are timelines given to the the activities of that task force, what it has to achieve within six months and then a year. But then what is most important, I think, is just the broad framing of the the intention. And it is now up to all the, the various partners on both sides of the agreement to work towards realizing that intention in the financing details and the implementation aspects. Great, thanks. And maybe 
to add a bit more details, what, what is the, the deal aiming to invest in in particular? So the $8.5 billion is a commitment to accelerate South Africa's just energy transition. And it's largely to support the plans of our national utility, ESCOM, that they have put on the table. But exactly how that money is going to flow, Mm. how much of it is going to flow to all of the different areas that are needed, Mm. I think is still quite vague at this point. We know that we need to establish a just energy transition fund that is particularly committed to the retraining of workers, the compensation of retired workers, the rehabilitation of communities. And all of that level of detail is still up in the air. Mm. But I think that the money sends a very strong signal. And I think that the, the announcement at COP26 in Glasgow was really the highlight of the climate summit as a whole. There were no other big announcements of this scale and that was received with this amount of enthusiasm. So I think in terms of making a commitment and a pledge by the international community, it was very promising. We know that developing nations have not come through on their pledges before. And so now everybody's watching and Mm -hmm. having this announcement made at this time has really just upped the stakes. The stakes are high now for everyone to do the deeds and not just talk the talk. Right. Thanks, Nina. And I think that's that point about the stakes being high is, is really important because this is a first of its kind deal, really. And so South Africa is in some ways, pioneering um, some new ground here. And I think the stakes are high, not just in terms of how this sets a precedent for the international community, but also the stakes in terms of what this is supposed to solve. And particularly, I have in mind, you know, the state of ESCOM, which I think has been a big part of the motivation for this finance deal is that ESCOM is in a pretty significantly dire financial straits with over 400 billion in debt, you know, with an aging and not very well functioning coal fleet that they're trying to, to finance. And so I know that a big part of the motivation for this deal was to try help sort of rescue ESCOM to a certain extent. And I know that Meridian Economics was part of the president's ESCOM sustainability task team. And part of what that showed was that uh, this sort of finance package was one of the few ways to maybe save ESCOM. Emily, could you maybe say a little bit more about how this finance package would target and maybe help ESCOM out of its uh, current dire straits? I think what is really important to understand is um, the systemic importance of ESCOM to the South African economy and its people on two fronts. I mean, the one is that it, it provides electricity and it needs to provide a secure, reliable electricity supply to the economy and increasingly needs to supply a decarbonized electricity supply to the economy. Hmm. And the second is related. It's, it's that it is incredibly emissions intensive and as an absolute emitter, it is the largest in, in our economy. So, that situation is not cannot change overnight. We can't shut off the coal fleet overnight and suddenly, hey, presto, have a, a renewables fleet that is large enough to 
enable our electricity to decarbonize. We're in, as, as Nina spoke earlier, we're in a transition, and ESCOM is necessarily a really important part of that transition. And because of the legacy as a as a um, integrated, vertically integrated monopoly, ESCOM is critical to any investment that happens in the power sector, whether ESCOM is investing in new generation itself or whether it is acting as the counterparty to power purchase agreements by independent power producers. And that means that as it stands in its financial vulnerability at the moment, it has got a, a huge amount of debt that it is unable to service given its revenues, and, and that's not going to change significantly going forward. That this means that it is a highly risky counterparty, and that raises the cost of investing in the South African power sector across the board, whether we're talking about gas or we're talking about renewables or nuclear, all gets more expensive with ESCOM in the state that it's in. Hmm. So we see a really critical part of Seoul or um, progressing the, the transition issue is by addressing ESCOM's risk, which becomes a systemic risk to the whole transition effort. And how we see, how Meridian has, has seen the climate finance being able to assist in this. And I, I think it's also important to understand that it's assisting with a range of other interventions that are very important. Climate finance can't do this on its own. We need tariff reforms. The unbundling of ESCOM needs to proceed to create a level playing field to enable the investment in renewables to flow as we require. And the South African society in the form of the fiscus most likely needs to be able to address the huge amount of ESCOM debt in an adequate way. Mm. So the, the current plans for addressing ESCOM's debt by National Treasury are not solving the problem. They're, because of the nature of compounding interest on debt, they are exacerbating the problem over the longer term. So the thinking that Meridian has, has been developing has been to argue to the international community that using climate finance together with a contribution from the South African society and economy to, in a once-off intervention, stabilize the financial um, sustainability of the entities that will come out of the ESCOM unbundling process, hmm. will then de-risk the power sector for energy transition investment going forward. So that this is a very high leverage point of intervention, or using the finance in order to enable private sector commercial finance to come into the sector and invest would be a really high impact intervention point. So this is this is how we see climate finance as being playing a role because government would be able to access a lower cost of finance in order to achieve this this one-off intervention. In our circles at the CST and working with our associates and friends like Meridian we're very much aware that this commitment at COP is the floor and not the ceiling. Mm. Like nobody can think that the deal is done and we can all go home. You know, what Emily is really talking about is the spark to the fire that needs to cascade a whole set, mm. a suite of transactions to be able to support this initial moves of ESCOM. And I think ESCOM's plans and the money that will flow into the utility through this concessional finance also sends a strong market signal Mm. that our accelerated 
ambition uh, really speaks to the global private sector market that South Africa is ready to move. It's also a good indicator for increased investor appetite from beyond the partners who have committed in this multilateral arrangement. And the other signals that this deal sends, while it's just the beginning, is that it can also incentivize policy change. And it creates pressure for policy to shift to enable more investment. And what Emily was talking about, this flow. So if we're thinking about things like unbundling ESCOM, we then have to change policy about how we procure energy, and that requires a shift. And so what this does is that it unlocks potential for so many other changes that cumulatively add up. Mm. That's how I understand transitions to happen. They happen not with a big bang, but they happen incrementally and they are more about responsiveness than they are about having a catch-all strategy that's going to enable everything to happen. Mm. Thanks, Nina. Yeah, I think that idea of this being a a spark that uh, brings on broader changes uh, is a nice metaphor there. And I think some folks, when they see this international climate finance deal, they worry that the spark might be setting a fire in a direction that they're not quite sure they want to go in. And I'm thinking particularly here about um, some of the trade union voices that are worried that you know, international climate finance might come with certain strings attached, that there isn't sort of money for nothing, there's no free lunch, and whether this might be, you know, a path towards privatization or other reforms in the energy sector that might be driven by, you know, international interests rather than domestic interests. And so I think there has been this sort of thread of worries that have been coming in there, which we do need to address. And so I wonder what folks would say to those worries um, and also whether there are, you know, complementary or alternative ways that we could fund a just transition that maybe wouldn't come with those strings attached, although maybe we're not clear whether there are strings attached yet at this point as well. So I don't know if, if either of you want to speak to, to maybe some of those worries that have been raised. I can give it a go, and I'd like to hear Emily's take on it as well. But I think transition finance is dependent on climate performance. There has to be targets for this kind of finance to make sense, right? Mm. So people are not just, well, there are some people who are giving money because they want to change the world and they don't want to have any kind of financial returns. And that's an interesting sector of the finance market. I think philanthropies fit that um, profile the best. But I think that transition finance is dependent on criteria that a country and its sub-sovereign entity, in this case our electricity utility, is able to commit to. So I think this fear that we will not be able to realize or enact our agency is something that we really need to think about because... Transition finance can't impose a decarbonization program onto a country as a lending condition without that program being a voluntary commitment by government Mm. 
reflected in policies and being able to be doable with the skills and the expertise and the institutional arrangements in place. So I think for transition finance, finance is made available for project undertakings and milestones that are within the utilities technical and institutional capacity to implement and to meet. So I think that the agency very clearly lies with us. What was really encouraging was um, our increased ambitions for our NDC. So and that by was NDC, something you mean nationally determined contribution, which we submit to the UN, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we increased our ambition for our nationally determined contribution. That signaled that we had the agency and the power to do that, to make that commitment. Yes, there are outside pressures, but it is not like development finance of old where there's a structural adjustment program and there are very punishing conditions that come attached to the money. Mm. Yeah, and I think that was it, is that I think a lot of people have the old structural adjustment programs in mind when they think about international climate finance. Emily, did you want to add there? Yeah, just a couple of things. Um, because completely agree with Nina the importance of agency in South Africa owning the path, the transition path and the pace of transition that it's on. And I think there are certainly ways of, and this will come out in the details, and this is a, a good aspect of why the details are, are left open at this point, because how exactly we commit to those measurable emission reductions or and progress in terms of supporting communities and coal workers' transition is up to us to determine as well in, in how we work out the details. And there are certainly ways in which uh, innovations across the climate finance space and in the impact financing space that we can look to to um, structure these financial instruments in, in such a way that we South Africa is incentivized to do what it wants and intends to do. Um, so I think I think that's important, um, and I think what's also I mean your, the, the concerns that you speak of are, are very very real and of trade unions and of the workforce that is in the the industries that need to transition, particularly in this case coal. And I think what is so encouraging about this opportunity that South Africa has now is that it can secure support to support the financial support in order to support those workers in those communities in a real way. We've, we've seen other transitions happen, notably the one in the gold sector, where there hasn't been support for workers. So I think that it's very critical that that remains really high on the agenda of ensuring that that support that flows and it flows in a way that is really meaningful for those communities. And then just the last thing that I wanted to add was some of the modeling work that we've been involved with, the National Business Institute has been involved with, and the PCC, the um, Presidential Climate Commission has looked at, has shown that in the power sector, moving rapidly towards a, a renewable and pathway that's aligned um, with our nationally determined contributions and the more ambitious end of our nationally determined contributions is from an affordability perspective, from a security of supplies perspective, really in the country's interests as the world is on this 
massive um, experiment in transformative change, we're mm. going to see huge economic changes. And unless we can fi- put ourselves into a position where we can attract financing or continue to attract investment in financing, which will increasingly depend on our ability to decarbonize, our exports are one of the most carbon intensive in the world. Our electricity supply is one of the most carbon intensive in the world. It's in our interests to move away from this as fast as we are able to. And so that's what kind of aligns our agenda as, as South Africa with with um, securing this financing that is focused on mitigation and on supporting um, the, those who are going to be most um, affected by the transition. Mm. Thanks for that. Yeah, and and I think that's a that's a really important element. Is not only to think about you know what risks come with finance, but what are the positive opportunities that can un- and un- it can unlock. And I think one of the elements of it is how do we attract the finances to to actually want to deliver on this climate finance deal. And I think one of the worries that they might have is with regards to corruption within the state, right? And I think. This this is, uh, is an issue, particularly with ESCOM, with its history of what we know we in, we in South Africa call state capture, but which you know more bluntly is is a form of corruption for non South African listeners. So I wonder when we're thinking about how to attract this climate finance deal, but also how to govern it, how do we deal with the the worries that arise when it comes to rooting out corruption, ensuring that it is spent in the right sorts of ways um, and doesn't go into you know. The, the black hole of, of debt that ESCOM accumulated often through um, corrupt or overpriced um, coal supply contracts. No, Nina, you've worked quite a bit on state capture issues in your work, so maybe I can lean on you first here and then, uh, Emily, if you want to chime in. I think we can start with a donor or investor checklist, first of all. Mm. Nobody's going to give money without certain criteria being satisfied. Mm. And those are like the regular kind of investor requirements, financials, governance, clear decarbonization targets and milestones, and really spelling out clear accountability Mm. and effective governance pathways. Where is this money going to land? How is it going to flow from that place? So at the moment, we're talking about a political commitment that's mm. made that was made at COP26. That still has to transpire. It must turn into rands and cents, and mm. then it must land in projects, and then it gets turned into windmills and solar panels and jobs and mm. value chains, inshallah. And there, where that, where that, inshallah, God willing, sits, <laughs> is really a point that we have to get right because the energy sector is only the first mover in this transition. Mm. When we're talking about massive finance flows into South Africa, We also have to think of other sectors like the transport sector, agriculture, petrochemicals, the automotive industry. And so how we build the architecture of good governance, how we build the relationships of good governance Mm. is really important now. And I think what we have learned from state capture is that having the structure doesn't necessarily provide 
the form. So what something looks like doesn't necessarily deliver what it should. Mm. So we had all of the constitutional institutions and relationships which were subverted. And so we understand that state capture operates not only from like outside forces or the private sector or brokers and middlemen, but they also work along constitutional processes, right? So that's why state capture is so hard to prove illegal. Mm. And so I think we have to very clearly have an institution or a set of institutions with very broad representations. And I think that the kind of institutions that are beginning to form within the state, even though they are not mandated to push programs, but they are advisory and deliberation forums like the Presidential Climate Commission, like Operation Vulandlela, these are institutions who hold broad concerns because they are constituted of people from so many different sectors and who hold very different concerns. Business, organized labor, civil society, legal, legal opinion. And so I think that any institution like this task force as well that needs to be assembled and make very serious uh, decisions. We have to think about whose interests are represented and whose voices are heard in the decision-making process. And I think that is one of the ways that we counter a predatory nature, a predatory project forming inside of institutions as what happened in state capture. Mm. Thanks, Nina. That's really interesting because I think we spoke earlier about the worries of what strings might be attached, but it seems that there might also be positive strings attached to ensure accountability and that this also can be a pathway for building better governance and maybe also some international learning and capacity building that maybe would come with this international climate finance package too to help us develop that capacity and, and good governance and multi-stakeholder way of moving this forward. Um, Emily, I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add to that particular question. I guess just two very small points. I mean, the one noting that in the the declaration of the partnership or the intention to form the partnership, they use the word inclusive hmm. in describing this ta- the, the participants in the task force. And I found that an, an encouraging word to have in there speaking in terms of what uh, Nina was speaking to. And then I guess the other thing is just to to note the the difficulty and the challenge of doing this in navigating um, these setting up governance structures that are appropriate and adequate because the parties that are involved, the big development finance institutions, um, have got a, a tendency to bureaucratize, I think. Um, mm. So the difficulty of not going, not responding to this in this need for good governance in a control and increase the red tape and increase the processes the tick boxes is going to be a a tough path to navigate. Yeah, so we've got to move away from the bureaucratize to hopefully the democratize of this space. Nina? Yeah, Alex, I think also um, what is really crucially important is 
that money moves towards the right places initially. You know, so we need to ensure that it's dedicated to driving catalytic projects that are identified. And as we know from our history, we have very good plans in South Africa, but not always good implementation. So this is really going to be a litmus test for how we do things better. So I think identifying what kind of work and what kind of projects need the first injection of Mm. cash. That is going to build a momentum where the kind of sticky hands of corruption can't take their time in getting into and reaching into. So I think that first set of decision-making around funneling the money is going to be really, really critical. Mm. It can't be projects that languish, if you know what I mean. Like Mm. They have to be quite fast-moving, evidence-based projects. Right. So, Nina, the answer you gave kind of points forward to a question that I was going to ask anyway, and it speaks a little bit to what President Ramaphosa said. So, when the announcement was made, he said, the plan provides proof that we can take ambitious climate action while increasing our energy security, creating jobs, and harnessing new opportunities for investment with support from developed economies. But, of course, the proof is in the pudding, right? And there's a lot that needs to be fleshed out. And as you pointed out, Nina, the South African government has this tendency of creating great plans and great ideas, but the implementation is really difficult. So what are some of the worries or risks that might spoil this pudding or maybe not make it quite the proof that we hope for? Are there, are there things in particular that you're worried about that we should be looking out for and making sure that maybe we as civil society are holding accountable uh, the government on? So I can offer a, a couple that are on on my mind, Alex. I think important is to stay the political course. We've mm. got some divergent views on this in the country of the our energy transition store. And um, those views can really undermine... I mean, money hasn't flowed, right? So if, if we seem to be not on our just transition pathway, then it would, you know, the, why would the partners, the international partners want to support us not being on the pathway. So I think that mm. just keeping focused, being able to keep ourselves united and focused politically is is, is really crucial, and um, particularly in the short term. I think there is something that concerns me on the partner side, which is really echoed in the outcomes of the COP and just generally what's happened in terms of climate finance. This climate finance term is really broad and it covers both grant finance, concessional finance, which is cheaper debt, and also commercial finance. So what exactly is the support that has been offered and how much of it is true grant support um, to us in our transition and how will the developed world really come to the party from that perspective? So that still seems out, you know, the jury's out on that. And then I think the final thing, which is very close to the heart of what the work Meridian's been doing is to be sure that of the concessional financing that flows, that we use it very strategically as a country because renewable energy and building out green infrastructure, even a lot of our transmission infrastructure should be commercially financeable. So we don't need, we've got a huge financing needs. 
in, in terms of this energy transition and not even getting to the other sectors that Nina spoke of earlier. So to be sure that we use the cheaper financing in order to unlock and attract the commercial financing, which we would then, there will be no holds barred in terms of what we'll be able to do to support us on a commercial basis. And I think that just links back to the, the point around setting ESCOM right so that it can play its role as a, as a credible counterparty, as a mainstay of this transition, but it can't do that if it's a, a black financial hole. So I think it's just that we, when we make our decisions about I mean, that, that's the one, the one critical area. And the other one is absolutely to support the just transition in the communities that, that where we put our money has got to be carefully thought through or where we put certainly the concessional aspects of the finance that flows must be very care- strategically used. So those would be my top three areas. Cool. I think one of the fears and risks is that the rands and cents won't materialize from the donor side as promised. There is a legacy of multilateral partners moving very, very slowly. And so success is only success when money's out the door for them. <laughs> success is only success when money is spent here for us. And so in between all of that, there's a host of complexities that can snarl this up. And so I really support Emily's view that the decisions, the first decisions about where this money is channeled is really critical because some kinds of investments will be very attractive to a market, a traditional finance market, and others are going to be harder to finance. I think areas around mitigation, so building out of renewable energy and low-carbon energy is something that markets are ready to finance and have, have been proven during the REAP. We've seen massive flows of finance into that project, but I think the harder things to finance are adaptation. And the REAP is just the Renewable Energy Independent Power Procurement Program for those uh, that are not uh, steeped in the acronyms. Yeah, so so building climate resilient communities, that's harder to fund. That's not mm. something the private sector is jumping at. And so completely agree with Emily that where we channel the concessional finance um, needs to be very carefully thought out and that a just energy transition fund must be one of the first things that are established. It cannot be an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem like the the just elements of that and investing in workers and investing in communities so that they can flourish in this transition and not be left behind really must be one of the central and primary investments of this and so I want to turn now to maybe a bit of an elephant in the room here. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about um, some lack of political alignment in the South African government. I think that's a polite way to put it because we have um, some pretty influential voices that are, are pushing back against this idea. Um, we had Floyd Chivambu, the deputy president of the Economic Freedom Fighters, as well as Minister Gwede Montashe, who's the head of the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, um, which, you know, is central to moving this forward. Both of them have come out against this 
claiming it's sort of an imperialist Western agenda to force clean energy on Africa, and that instead of you know moving to clean energy, we should be burning coal for hundreds of years to come, and to do otherwise would be economic suicide, to quote Minister Montache. I wondered what you made of their objections, and you know what does this mean for the future of the finance deal if we have such influential voices uh, coming out to to resist it? And Montache did this just a week after the deal was announced, as well went to a big energy conference and made these sorts of claims. So, yeah, I'd be curious of your thoughts on this front. I think that kind of thinking is Jurassic, <laughs> and. It is ridiculous to imagine that coal has a future when the rest of the world is disinvesting, when there are real fears of stranded assets, new coal-fired power stations, new coal mines are not financeable. I don't understand where our energy minister thinks he's going to access this finance from it's going to be nigh impossible to come by. And that's finance for new coal, right? Yes, that's yeah. finance for new coal. And it's just out of sync with all of the commitments um, that the rest of the world is making. It is out of sync with the climate realities of people in South Africa. There are people who are dying of illness that are related to coal burning and coal mining. Those lives matter, surely, Minister. They matter in a way that sends a very strong indication that we need to change. Coal-fired energy and the extractive industry is not just about jobs. It's also about livelihoods. And this is not always an aspect of the conversation that we fully appreciate because we are in such a dire situation with unemployment, especially youth unemployment that is reaching nearly 70%. It's also very clear from research that coal jobs are not even that stable mm. and that there are greater opportunities for employment in low-carbon sectors and along those value chains if we are able to really invest in local content. And I think that when a minister or any other political figure is so intent in going in the opposite direction, I have to ask, what are your interests here, really? Mm. Don't ask too closely, otherwise the minister might try to, to sue you. <laughs> I say that because the minister is trying to sue me for an article I wrote about him, um, which also speaks to the activities that the Climate Justice Coalition has been doing to put pressure on Minister Montache and the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy because they really are the biggest block to this just energy transition. Um, and it is a, a travesty that they are still singing from the same dirty old coal sheet and that the president allows them to continue to do that when he has the power to change who's in charge. I think it has a lot to do with maybe the president being reliant on Montasha to, with, to keep power in the ANC, unfortunately. So it maybe does come back to just real politic getting in the way of what's needed for change on this front. Emily, anything you wanted to add there? 
Yeah, thanks, Alex. I, I want to add something from my perspective um, as an economist, because I completely agree with everything that, that Nina's brought. But I think in addition, the reality is that we are a small, open economy, South Africa, and the world is moving in a particular direction. Now, regardless of commitments made or moral reasons for doing so, the financial institutions, finance and the markets are moving faster than the political processes at the international level is even able to go. So they're moving faster than the COP decisions. And this is going on a trend towards a 1.5, we hope. This is a, from a climate perspective, a really positive sign. Um, but it does mean that unless South Africa responds to this and takes up the opportunities like this climate finance opportunity that are offered, mm. we're just going to get marginalized and left behind with devastating social consequences and mm. economic consequences. So if we continue to burn coal for a 100 years, I would categorize that as economic suicide, not the opposite, because mm. we will just lose investment, we will lose our export markets, we will lose our access to finance. So I think that this actually brings us back very nicely to what we were both speaking about right up front in the podcast, which is about the the opportunity in this climate-framed transaction or, or financing opportunity to unlock opportunities to create a better society across the board, a more inclusive, more equal society. So it, it just, as you framed it, is a really nice example of being able to do that if we can, can keep the political course. Mm. I wonder what Minister Mantash imagines when he thinks about the reindustrialization of the South African economy. Mm. Because that is where the real gains are for a just transition. Right. The real gains are in jobs and in flows of finance. If we continue to burn coal, we cannot reindustrialize, we cannot diversify, we are still dependent on this mineral that has kept us locked into relationships and skewed power dynamics for over a hundred years. It has been the substance and it has been the relationship that has locked out the development of other sectors in our economy. We absolutely cannot afford to stay in coal if we want our economy to thrive, mm. if we want to create jobs. Yeah, and I think for me this is this points to one of the saddest elements is that Montashe and Shivambu claim the sort of anti-colonial rhetoric to push back against this. But what they're defending, in essence, is one of the worst colonial legacies that South Africa has, which is the minerals energy complex, which has made us one of the most polluting and one of the most unequal countries in the world, right? And so this, if done right, has the potential to kickstart a green industrialization process and a broader economic transformation, which can hopefully put social and ecological and economic justice at the heart and be one of the greatest economic opportunities for South Africa. Instead, Minister Mantashe does seem to be pushing us towards an economic dead end. Um, and so I think this really speaks to the need to make big changes in the politics here and to get you know, those Jurassic fossils out of political office, to borrow your, your words, Nina, there a bit. And this does bring sure. me towards my 
sort of last question, I think, um, for the podcast, unless there's other stuff that you folks wanted to raise up. But, you know, this, the climate finance deals and the UN spaces can seem pretty high level. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's not clear how this affects them or how they can be involved. And we do want people to get involved. This is really some of the most vital issues that are going to shape so much of South Africa's future. So how would you recommend that listeners get involved or find out more about this this issue? There are many ways to be involved in climate action. And there are many ways to participate in decision-making. And that might not always be directly, but I think for South Africans, we have a real problem in staying within polarized debates Mm. where ideological positions are fixed. And when you move from that ideological position, you're a sellout. Mm. And then you're not allowed back in that FAMS anymore. (laughs) And we really need to explore other perspectives and other possibilities. Mm. I think what often happens and what has happened in this conversation around an energy transition and around climate finance is we immediately attack the details. Mm. And understood details are critical. They're important. But can we generate enough momentum and enough gears for the possibility, Mm. for what is possible, and then lobby for the kinds of institutions and decision-making forums and representations that are needed? I think to dismiss an opportunity because it's foreign money or because it comes with conditionalities, is really short-sighted for understanding the volume of finance that we need to facilitate a transition. Mm. And so I would encourage us all to engage in conversations that make us really uncomfortable Mm. and to get out of our ideological boxes a little bit to explore what else is possible I think we should be thinking about forming allies more Mm. with people who we think are our enemies or who are on opposite sides. So the ways that we understand markets, the ways that we understand the private sector and business, historically, it has been quite an extractive relationship from those quarters. And so fears and ideas of who these sectors are is justified and founded, but it's not going to serve us going forward. Mm. It's not going to serve the kind of relationships and trust building that we need. And this is a big issue here. It's around trust building. It's around trust building between multilateral organizations and countries it's around trust building within our own governance systems and between and with each other and finance doesn't flow where there is mistrust Mm -hmm. and so i think we all have some part to play when it comes to understanding who the other is about and how we can synergize more than shut out And I think that the other 
ways of taking action is by educating ourselves. There are so many incredible organizations and forums, the Climate Justice Coalition being one, mm. where there is constructive engagement for how we can imagine a just energy transition, mm. where there are clear actions to take, to support campaigns, to add your voice, to pitch up at protests, to sign on to, to pledges. And I think climate action is also about decolonizing. Mm. It's also about challenging dominant power systems that are everywhere. Because we know that, as you've explained, the minerals energy complex, Alex, those are all colonial hangovers. And mm. all of those skewed power dynamics are stem f from those um, origins. So I think the ways that we interface with those structures of power, mm. the ways that we understand our own consumptions is really important. But I think primarily my bugbear and my sore point are very fixed ideological positions. I mm. think we have to... We have to we have to ourselves unbundle. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dina. That's a, that's a really interesting reflection and sort of walking this fine line between you know not making the perfect the enemy of the good when it comes to this climate finance deal. We're trying to push it to do better, but then also finding trust. And I think this is so key. A just energy transition is about justice. And how do you build justice without trust? And for South Africa, that's such a big challenge. We're such a deeply unequal society and we have so many difficult conversations and issues that we need to bring together in tackling this so this in some ways is such an incredibly complex and difficult issue that we need to tackle and we do need people coming together because it is such an incredibly transformative moment and it requires very innovative modes of engaging and coming together so i really appreciate that emily over to you yeah so i just want to wholeheartedly agree with Nina. I think you've really identified the core issues of, of what we need to do. But but I'd like to to put it into a, a kind of an encourage what I see as an encouraging light in that Alex you, you say that yes we have deep we are deeply divided as a society, but we have got a history and a fairly recent history of being able to do transformative change in a really amazing way. And I think one of the, the things that this um, climate partnership offers us is a real leadership opportunity on the international stage mm. because we have been identified as a leading emerging economy that is ripe for this type of support and for doing and being able to make a success of it. So I think this is the this is the opportunity. It's not only an opportunity to achieve the support for our transition, but it's also an opportunity to really take a, a very central part in the world's um, transition, a net zero future. And sometimes it's helpful to have that kind of external goal in order to come together collectively, as we have done in the past, to, to mm. respond to that. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. And I think, you know, it's really interesting because when you read the international press, they're looking at South Africa and they're saying this is a model of how to move away from coal. It's it's really being seen in this positive moral light. And, you know, historically, South Africa has been 
sort of spawn in the moral shot, uh, the moral um, spotlight for our efforts in overcoming apartheid. And in, in some ways, this might provide a new moral spotlight that we're being thrust into in terms of overcoming one of the biggest economic legacies of apartheid, as we've talked about, which is the minerals energy complex. And it provides this really incredible opportunity for South Africa to do some deep transformation, which is so desperately required. And so we started talking about how climate change can be depressing and, and hard, but it's also this incredible moment that we're facing now for, for transformation, and we need it on so many fronts. The climate crisis is calling out for it, the unemployment, the economic crisis in South Africa. So hopefully this is an opportunity where we can really build on that. Um, so thank you, Nina and Emily, for coming. It's really been a pleasure speaking to you and unpacking this, this really important moment for South Africa. But uh, as we know, there's there's a lot of work to be done to make it happen. So hopefully this conversation has helped people to think about, you know, what work lies ahead and, and how we can do that together to really use this moment. So So thank you and thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thank you, Alex, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Nina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.